All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19? And let's just uh, start off by reading the first three verses. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, this morning in our study in Matthew's Gospel, we come to chapter 19, which begins with a question. A question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus that was really designed to trip him up and um, get public opinion against him. The question had to do with his view on marriage, but in particular, his position on divorce. This, whether you know it or not, was a hot-button topic in Jesus' day. This very issue. How easy was it to get a divorce? Uh, it was a hot topic issue because people wanted the freedom to get divorced quickly and painlessly. You see, they were consumed with their own selfish desires and wanted the freedom to move from one partner to the next while still giving the impression, the appearance, that they were righteous and godly by marrying each person they really wanted to shack up with. But they wanted a quick way out so that if somebody new came along, they could have a new fling, divorcing the other gal quickly and moving in with this other person, of course, getting married and all under the guise of being very righteous and so on. Honestly, I think we can all see that the same basic attitude is still uh, alive in our country, especially among many younger couples, not all, but many. Uh, we know every year hundreds of thousands of couples pledge themselves to one another in marriage, vowing really to stay together for better or for worse, and yet they wind up divorced. The problem has contributed to a lot of other problems, not the least of which is unwanted children. It's interesting that there, is, there are as many abortions by married women in our country as there are by unmarried women, maybe even more. It seems that uh, many young couples don't want children. In fact, one-third of all child-age-bearing couples have been sterilized. Why? Well, first of all, kids are a tremendous drain on time and resources. And if you want to do your own thing and have the things that you want and go places and so on, then children are just going to cramp your style. But I think predominantly the reason that young couples don't want kids is because children make divorce messy. So if you don't have any kids, when you want to, when you want to break things off, all you got to do is leave, okay? Children just get in the way. Because of it, there's a lot of young people who are rethinking the whole idea of marriage. We have a generation of young people who are growing up in families that uh, honestly are a mess, many of them. And so many of them are thinking to themselves, these young people, why even get married? I mean, I saw what my mom and dad went through with their divorce. Why even bother with the pain and the expense of divorce? Let's just live together. Then if we get tired or things get too complicated, we can just walk away, no hassles. And so within the last couple of years, the number of young couples living together in our country out of wedlock for the first time in our nation's history, has surpassed the number of those young couples who are married and living together. And if this keeps up, it's possible, it's possible that the next generation may not get married at all. 
and we'll have a society of people whose only purpose will be to cohabit with each other until they tire of the relationship and move on to someone new. So, you know, marriage is under attack today in our country, but as I said, it was also under attack in Jesus' day as well. In fact, it was often used as a weapon against political opponents, and that's how the Pharisees are using it here. They see that the crowds have become very enamored with Jesus. He's got a large following. In fact, as you see here now, he's come into Judea. We have entered the last six months of his life. He has moved from the Galilee where he was laying low and come down into Judea. He has set his sights on Jerusalem because he knows the cross is looming and he is getting now ready to go to Jerusalem and face the final series of events that will lead up to his crucifixion. Now the Pharisees see him coming down. Crowds are gathering. They know he's very popular among the people. So they want to try to polarize. They want to try to get public opinion to turn against him. What better way to do, to do that than to use what I have called here a controversial question. Let's read verse 3 again. They came to him, the Pharisees, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, I call this a controversial question. It really isn't controversial. You see, here's the thing. When people talk about the Bible, and this happens with Christians, and they come across things that God has said that really aren't ambiguous, they're pretty clear, but they don't like what they're hearing. They don't really want to do what God has clearly said. They often try to wrap it in a cloud of controversy. Oh, this is a controversial topic. What they're really saying is, we don't accept the clear teaching of what the Bible says, so we've got to kind of muddy the waters a little bit by saying, oh, this is controversial. Look, it's only controversial if you don't want to do what God has said. I mean, it's pretty clear otherwise, isn't it? This whole, this whole section from really verses 1 through especially verse 9 is pretty clear and straightforward. It's only controversial in our society as it was back in their time because people today as well as back then just didn't want to accept what God had clearly said. So a controversial question. Once again, verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the question itself betrays how their view of marriage had degraded over the years to the point that marriages were being discarded at this point for just any reason. You see, they had come to a point in their society where they no longer had a high view of marriage, just like we see today. I mean, couples still make a big deal about the wedding. I mean, that's obvious. The wedding industry is doing very well. Most people still get married in the church. They still stand before God and make vows to each other, promising to be faithful and to stay by, by each other's sides for better or for worse until death do they part. Then they rent a hall, invite family and friends to celebrate this wonderful thing called marriage. But you know what? I'm sorry. So much of it is nothing more than a show. A show. I'm convinced that most people today really don't intend to stay with their partner if things get really difficult. Now, that's not across the board. I really appreciate how a lot of these uh, young wives have stayed by their men who have come home from Afghanistan or uh, Iraq all busted up, missing limbs. We support, C Cindy and I, the Wounded Warrior Project uh, because we really believe that 
we need to help these families and uh, we just I just find it so inspiring to see these young women standing by their men their husbands taking care of them it's not everybody but for so many young couples today they enter into the vows but the vows don't mean much and I think that they really they may say they intend to be faithful to their spouse until death do they part but honestly today with the very promiscuous society we're living in often if a if an opportunity presents itself to have an affair they do and I know that may sound a little cynical but I think that the, the statistics on divorce uh, back me up that if young couples really meant what they said to each other before God that they really meant to keep those vows you have a lot less divorce in our country today and because of it many couples today feel about marriage the same way the Jews felt in Jesus' day, that they should be able to get divorced for almost any reason. In fact, we have now in our nation, uh, I'm not sure it's in every state, but I know in uh, Illinois it is, uh, no, no fault divorce. You don't even have to have a valid reason. If you decide you want out, you can get out. So we see the controversial question. But Jesus brings it back to God's original intention. That's always where we must go. Society is never to be the gauge for how we live our lives. We are never to look to the world to find out what the standards are in marriage or any other way to live our lives. We go back to God's word, especially as believers, right? So Jesus said in verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, Mark tells us, he said, at the beginning of creation, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that marriage is not the invention of man. It is a creation of God. It is not the invention of man. It is the creation of God. And as such, only God has the right to define it and regulate it. Even though today people are pushing for gay marriage and group marriage and every other sort of combination that they want to call marriage, these things don't qualify as marriage in God's eyes. Now, I know that's a controversial statement. But only because so many people don't want to accept what God has said. They say, well, we have the right to be married. Well, that right comes from God who ordained marriage. And you don't get to, to make marriage whatever you want it to be and say, well, now it ought to be recognized. The state may wind up doing that, which I believe it will. But in God's eyes, it will never be accepted, just like abortion. There are things that man says is okay, even passes laws to regulate. That doesn't mean anything in the, in the eyes of God. It's only his laws that are supreme. And we need to obey, of course, what he has said. But here Jesus quotes from two Old Testament passages. Genesis 1 verse 27 and Genesis 2 verse 24. And he does this because he wants to present what God's original intent for marriage was. Now this is God's intention. This is his ideal. We don't always live up to the ideal. And so I'm going to end this message this morning by kind of trying to help you with that. But you know what? We need to go back to God's ideal. That should be the goal. We're not going to always hit the ideal. But that should be the goal in life is to live up to what God has said. And so by quoting these two passages from it, Jesus presents four reasons why divorce was never in God's plan. 
for mankind. He said in verse 4, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He made them male and female at the very beginning. Now, in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, in the, in the Hebrew text, Genesis 1.27, that phrase is in the emphatic position, giving the sense of, listen, the one male and the one female, emphasizing the singularity of both. One man, one woman. In other words, God did not create a group of males and a group of females and said, all right, go for it, all right? Pick who you want, all right? Uh, and that kind of thing. There were no spares. <laughs> there were no options. Uh, there was no provision even for the possibility of multiple or alternative spouses. There was only the one man and the one woman in the beginning. And for that very reason, first and foremost, divorce and remarriage was not an option. And by the way, neither was homosexuality. And let me just say one thing. Jesus said, in the beginning of the creation, here's what God did. Do you realize that marriage predates the fall? And that's very important because marriage is holy. It's a creation of God. I mean, there are things that happened after the fall. We see adultery and homosexuality and murder and rape and all kinds of things. But all these were a perversion of what God originally intended, especially, of course, marriage. He said in verse 5, number 2, he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be what? Joined to his wife. Now, of course, God in saying this was, was talking about future generations because Adam and Eve didn't have any parents. God made them as a direct creation. But he was laying down a principle for marriage. And from this point, obviously, in the future, at one point, a man would leave his father and mother, be joined to a wife, and they would, God would create through them a brand new thing, a family, a brand new, where now the children become the adults who then become the parents. But the principle that Jesus is talking about here is found in the word joined. It's the Hebrew word dabak, which is translated joined in my new King James, or cleave in your King James, if you're reading out of one. And this refers to the strong bonding together of objects often used to represent gluing them or cementing them together. You notice that God didn't say a man shall leave his father and mother and be tied, rubber banded, or paper clipped to his wife. <laughs> indicating that, uh, you know, doesn't work out. You just basically, you know, uh, get loosed and go find somebody else. He made it a point to say, when I join two people together, I glue them together in a very special way. God has always intended that marriage be a permanent union between a man and a woman for life. Also, he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. The third principle Jesus harvests from these quotes out of Genesis is uh, that divorce was never God's plan from the beginning uh, because in marriage the two become what? One flesh. That's interesting. When a man and a woman are joined in marriage, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh and therefore indivisible, only separated through death. Now, of course, the one flesh becomes literal in their children, doesn't it? I mean, when a husband and wife come together for procreation, 
those children become literally one from the two. So a beautiful emblem is demonstrated through the children. And fourth, the fourth reason that Jesus gives for divorce not being in God's perfect design for marriage, in verse 6 he says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me just say something. You may disagree. Um, let me just say it. In that regard, when God said, you know, what God has joined together, every marriage is joined together by God. Every marriage, not just Christian marriages. Every marriage. In that regard, every marriage is made in heaven. Now, not every match is made in heaven, but every marriage is made in heaven. What do I mean? Well, simply this. I'm convinced, and, and not everyone agrees with me, but I'm convinced we can choose something that's less than God's best. We can do it in God's plan for our lives. We can do it with regard to marriage. I know there are some people who I believe rushed marriage. They didn't really pray about it. They were all stars in their eyes kind of thing, you know, and love at first sight and why pray? It's got to be God's will. I hear music every time I'm with this person. That's great. Check your iPod. Maybe you got something sticking in your ear still. I don't know. But the idea is, you know what? Some people just don't pray enough. This is the second biggest decision of your life apart from receiving Christ. It needs to be prayed about, maybe fasted over this decision. But people don't always do that. And they wind up marrying a person that I don't believe is God's best for them. Now, here's the thing. Even though God hasn't made this match in heaven, when you say, I do, guess what? Now this marriage is made in heaven. And that means that even though they may not have been God's best for you at that moment, they can wind up becoming God's best in time. Because it's going to take maybe a little extra time. As somebody has written a book with an award-winning title, Good Marriages Take Time, Bad Marriages Take More Time. But the bottom line is God can make any marriage beautiful in His time. With our God, nothing is impossible. And even though we sometimes rush ahead of God, maybe even get a little rebellious, because I know people that have wound up, you know, and mostly it's you girls who got these beautiful hearts to save these rebels, okay? And, you know, you love this bad boy, and, you know, God's called me to marry him and save him. Well, no, he hasn't, but sometimes they go ahead and marry guys like that, and all of a sudden now they find themselves unequally yoked to an unbeliever. I don't believe that's God's will. Can God use them to eventually touch them for Christ? Yes, it doesn't always work out that way. But I know a lot of women who really, after they had made this mistake, this sin really, have repented, gotten on their faces before God asked for grace and mercy and began to be the wife that God wanted them to be, even though their husband wasn't saved, maybe even cheating on them from time to time. But in time, through her grace and prayers and God's power, I've seen these guys get saved. It's a long road. It's a tough road. But you know what? In the end, God can make even that situation beautiful. So the point I'm making is that not all matches are made in heaven, but I believe all marriages are. And once you say, you're, I do, you're done, basically. And I've heard, I heard a lot of Christians who, after they rush into marriage and realize that this is not working out so well, they'll come to me and say something like, well, you know what? I realize now that I, I rushed God and I disobeyed God and I married the wrong guy. In other words, that means it's okay for me to divorce this bozo and find the right guy. I don't see it that way. Okay? I don't see it that way. 
I don't see in Scripture, you know, it's like Joshua and the children of Israel with the Gibeonites. Different context, same idea. Joshua got tricked into making a covenant with the Gibeonites, even though God said they were not to make a covenant with the people of the land, but they, Joshua didn't pray. He just, these guys came, they looked like they had come from a far distance. They came to Joshua, make a covenant with us, because they knew. They didn't make a covenant with Joshua and the children of Israel. They were going to be wiped out, because Joshua and the children of Israel were moving through the land of Canaan, wiping out various uh, cities and things. So the Gibeonites, this was their only hope. So they tricked, but it says Joshua did not pray or seek the Lord. He just took stock, you know, visually. So yeah, they look like they've come from a long way. Clothes are all tattered and dirty. Okay, we'll enter into a covenant with you. And he was tricked into it. But you know what? God held him accountable to keep the covenant. So that years later, when King Saul broke the covenant and started to kill the Gibeonites, God judged Israel. Because when you make a covenant, God expects you to keep it. And the idea that, well, I, I was deceived. This guy, he told me he was a Christian, but, you know, uh, he deceived me. So there, therefore, the marriage is really null and void, right? No. God expects you to keep that covenant and trust him to make it right, the relationship. They hang in there. Let me just say this. Even unbelievers enter into God's blessings when they get married. Whether they recognize it or not, every couple who has enjoyed the companionship, happiness, and fulfillment of marriage has experienced a miraculous blessing from God. Not, e not just the Christians now. Because marriage is a creation of God. Even unbelievers are blessed when they enter into it. And even unbelievers can have happy, fulfilling marriages because whether they know it or not, they're applying principles that God has laid down, selflessness, putting the other first. There's, there are unbelievers, of course, who are very selfless people, and a lot of Christians who are very selfish people. It's a lot of Christian marriages that are failing, and a lot of unbelieving marriages that might be working out pretty well. It's because they're built on a selfless love that, if it's not present, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, uh, it's not going to work. So even unbelievers can experience joy in marriage, fulfillment in marriage, because it's a creation of God, a blessing of God. But to destroy a marriage is to destroy a creation of Almighty God. Therefore, where God is joined together, Jesus warned, let not man separate. The word separate there is the Greek word karizo. And when it's used in the context of marriage, it always carries the idea of divorce, never separation. It was used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10, translated leave, but the context is definitely divorce. And Jesus' point is that marriage is always the work of God, whereas divorce is always a work of man. And therefore, what God has joined in marriage, no man or woman has the right to separate or to divorce. At best, listen to me, divorce and remarriage is only permitted by the Lord. It's never commended and certainly never commanded as the Pharisees wrongfully thought Moses had said. Now, when Jesus gives them a firm response to their controversial question, quote-unquote, they didn't like it. The world hates it when you are definitive in what God has said. The world wants a very broad way. The world wants a tolerant road to walk down. It wants an inclusive road. And when we Christians say, oh, no, God says that's wrong. <gasps> you are so intolerant. Well, I'm only telling you what God said, all right? I mean, Jesus said, I am the way. 
the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? But it happens to be true. If there is only one way, it's not being narrow-minded to say there's only one way. It's being honest. And when we say, no, no, when people say there are many roads that get to heaven, that's not biblical. It might be, you know, the kind of thing that people want to hear, a popular thing, but not a biblical thing. So Jesus gives a firm response to the Pharisees' question, and that drew their ire and consternation. And they shot back in verse 7, Why then? <laughs> we don't like that answer. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Look, we have seen a controversial question, God's original intention, and now we see a human concession. All right, verse 8 Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. First of all, the Pharisees were wrong when they said Moses commanded a man to divorce his wife if he found some uncleanness in her. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Jesus corrected them by saying it was not a command, but a concession. A concession due to the hardness of men's hearts towards their wives in marriage. See, towards your wives in marriage. This was really focusing on the men. Back then in that culture, men could divorce their wives. The wives could not divorce their husbands. The women really had no reason. She could leave, but she couldn't legally divorce him. He could basically toss her off for any reasons we're going to see. So this was targeted back then primarily at the men. Of course, today, husbands and wives can pursue divorce for any trivial reason. So it really applies to both. He said, because of the hardness of your hearts. Interesting Greek word, sclerosis, which means a gradual hardening. And that's what happens in marriage. As a pastor, one of the great joys that I have had over the years is to officiate at weddings. And of course, as we all know, that's a very happy day to see young couples finally who have um, gotten engaged, finally come together to enter into marriage, to pledge themselves to each other, and so on. Uh, it's a great time of celebration. And I see the love in their eyes, and I just, it's wonderful. But it's very heartbreaking to see sometime down the road, whether it's a year or two years or five years, when all that love is turned to anger and bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness, and it happens gradually. Most marriages are not destroyed through a single event. It's death by a thousand cuts. And it just happens gradually where hearts are hardened, slowly. Resentments build. A root of bitterness is planted. Poison fruit begins to grow. And pretty soon, the two people that pledge to love each other for better or for worse, to stay by each other's side no matter what for the rest of their lives, uh, can't even be in the same room together. That's sad. Because of it, a situation develops that becomes so intolerable, so painful, and maybe even dangerous, that Moses allowed divorce. He made a concession. He permitted it. And even though Jesus acknowledged that this concession existed in the law of Moses, he didn't condone it. He what? He condemned it. He condemned it as being contrary to God's original design for marriage. And he quotes the two passages we said, Genesis 127 and 2. 24. See, nowhere in Scripture does God ever command someone to get a divorce, listen, even in the case of adultery. Even in the case of adultery. 
He permits divorce in the case of adultery or with, when there's other sexual sins present. But he never commands it. Because God's first choice is always forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what God's always about. God would rather restore. He would rather rebuild. He would rather take a life or a marriage that has been cast into the trash heap because it seems worthless. It seems hopeless. And God delights in picking up broken people, broken marriages, and turning them into something beautiful and constructive for His glory through the power of His Spirit. Of course, that takes willing hearts, or at least one person in the marriage is willing. But what about all this confusion? Okay? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24, and let's look at the passage that really started all the controversy among the Jews, and see what Moses actually said. Actually said. And we'll just touch on the first verse today. We'll look at it just a little more in detail next time. But Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Here's what Moses said. He said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her, in her hand, and sends her out of his house, stop there. Of course, the proper understanding of the passage hinged on the correct interpretation of what some uncleanness meant. And that obviously opened the door for various interpretations and gave rise to two main schools of thought in the subject. One led by Rabbi Shammai and the other led by Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shammai was the conservative. And he held a very narrow interpretation of this. He said that the uncleanness was that on their wedding night, he found that she was not a virgin. And that, and that alone was the only legal grounds for a man to put away or to divorce his wife. Representing the liberal view was Rabbi Hillel, who died only about 20 years before Jesus began his public ministry. His interpretation of uncleanness was very broad. Okay, He taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about any trivial reason. Let me give you a few. There's a lot of them. Uh, if she talked to other men, he could cut her loose. Okay, If she let her hair down in public, if she burned his bread or put too much salt in his food, he could divorce her for speaking ill of his mother. Wow, that would wipe out a lot of marriages today. <laughs> or if she was infertile. In fact, it got so crazy, some of the rabbis even began to teach that if a man found a woman who was prettier than his wife, then his wife would be considered unclean in his eyes. He could legally divorce her and marry the prettier gal. The poor women back then had no recourse. They had very little rights. And so the Jewish people were divided, although not equally, as you might imagine, between the teachings of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. But you know what? Jesus settles the matter in verse 9. But we're not going to talk about it today. There's just too much to talk about. I'm not going to just rush through it. All right? I will say this, though, as we just bring it to a close. Okay, because I want to say a lot more next time. I just want you to understand, though, if you're here this morning and you have been divorced and remarried, I'm not trying to lay condemnation on you. All right, we're trying to get back to God's original design. That's all. You know, Jesus Christ is the ideal for all of our lives, right? Do we all measure up to Jesus all the time as Christians? Of course not. 
If we don't measure up, what does God do? Kick us out of the family? No, there's forgiveness, right? Divorce and remarriage is not the unpardonable sin. But you know what? We live at a time when everybody wants to reinterpret God's word, redefine it, rewrite it, basically, and make it consistent what the morals of the day are. That you know what? If we're going to be true to our God, we've got to go back to the beginning and see what he has said about these things. And I will end with something that God said through the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 2. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because it comes through a little more contemporary. He said, here is another thing you do. Now, this is going back in Malachi, about 400 years before the New Testament started. Okay, So 400 years before John the Baptist came on the scene, saying Israel was, was still... Uh, men were still divorcing their wives for petty reasons. And God takes them to task about this. He says, here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make, make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife for your youth, because God says, I hate divorce. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Well, sure, because the girls had no recourse, you know? Maybe she's been married to this guy for 10 years. And all of a sudden he cuts her loose, throws her out in the street. Where's she going to go? How's she going to survive? What's she going to do for a living? It was cruel. All because the man wanted to satisfy his physical desires. Well, today again in our society, this applies to both men and women. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now I want you to notice something. God said he hates divorce. He didn't say he hates divorced people. Very important. He hates divorce, first of all, because it destroys one of his special creations. You know what that is? Your marriage. Your marriage is a special creation that God has joined in heaven. We've already talked about that. Where he glues two people together. And when you try to rip apart something God has glued together, it's going to leave broken hearts and devastated lives. And I know some people are making light out of it. There's even happy divorce cards now that you can get. Celebrating divorce. God never celebrates divorce. Divorce may sometimes be uh, absolutely necessary in certain situations. But it's never to be celebrated. God hates it because it destroys people he loves. God hates divorce because it damages the children and causes them to believe that marriage is a bad thing, a painful experience, something that should be avoided and not embraced. And when young couples throw marriage out the window and just live together, well, it weakens our society and winds up damaging our nation. This is the unintended consequence of broken families. Do you realize that marriage is the building block of society? end of the church. When marriages begin to crumble, what do you think take, Satan is targeting? He knows that. He's stupid. What do you think Satan is targeting? He's targeting marriages. Because if he can destroy marriage, 
He can destroy the church and ultimately society. If we're not watching that right going on around us, I don't know what we're watching. And so, yes, Jesus has some very strong things to say for those who divorce for unbiblical reasons because so much was at stake. But that, in saying this, does not mean, and we'll touch on this more next time, but in saying these strong words about divorcing one another for unbiblical reasons, that doesn't mean he is putting down or hates divorced people. Jesus Christ is all about giving us a second chance. That's what he, that's what salvation is, right? And even after we get saved, we're not perfect. We're not going to always hit the ideal. And God still loves us. But you know, there's something very powerful when two people say, you know what, we pledge to remain by each other for the rest of our lives, for good or for bad, a sickness or in health. And you know what, we're going through some pretty rough times right now. But you know what? We believe that with God all things are possible. I'm going to hang in there. Only one has to say that. I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God for a miracle. And it may take a while, and it's not going to be easy. But you know what? When God gives that miracle and that marriage is healed, what a trophy of God's grace that he will hold up and go, if I can do it for these folks, don't you think I can do it for you guys? Look at how bad their marriage was, but they trusted me. And look what I've done. I've totally recreated it. There is hope for your marriage. And if we fail and don't allow God to work, He still loves us. He isn't going to abandon us. It's just that when we obey Him, man, can He really use us. If we decide to go our own way because we're just not feeling like we want to Put the effort in or the sacrifice in to see our marriage healed. It's easier to bail. Well, it does solve a lot of problems right away. But I have an uncle who got divorced 30 years ago and told me not long ago, I still regret that divorce. I love your aunt with all my heart, but I still regret that I didn't hang in there and let God work and heal my marriage. So come on back next week. God bless you if you do. Uh, not easy to. Well, I went to a church Sunday. Man, was that a downer. Um, hey, look, we're only trying to be, you know, that's the beautiful thing about going verse by verse. Nobody called me and said, you were going to be here and your marriage is in trouble. Um, we just are going right through. And if you're here today for this message, it's because God wanted you here. And give God glory by asking him for the grace to do what he wants you to do. God's in the business of healing, restoring, recreating. And uh, with God, all things are possible. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that, Lord, there is nothing hard for you. And yes, Lord, you're all about taking imperfect people who are flawed and selfish and whatever and making them like Jesus if they will bow the knee to you, Lord. Receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit will come inside of them and give them the ability to be what they can't be in and of themselves. And so, Lord, I know right in this room there are marriages that are about ready to crumble. Others, Lord, are under a lot of stress right now and are beginning to buckle. And, Lord, I pray that those couples will go home tonight, get on their knees and begin to pray. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that they would take each other in their arms, maybe for the first time in months. 
and confess their sins. Humble themselves and seek you, Lord, for the grace to die to self that you might make their marriages something beautiful. It's easy to bail. It's a lot harder to work through things, to honor our commitment and our vows. Give them grace to do that, Lord, because you want to do a new thing. You want to make their marriage beautiful. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.